Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan Baker and Bianca Bramham. Hello. Hello. Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action, in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Every week we come together in the Jackie Winter blimp that is our recording studio and dissect three different links that we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping off point to look at what's shaping the issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing the collection of conceptual art, the emergence of visual contracts, and best practices for presenting and receiving portfolios. This week, we whip out our Metro cards and take our monthly visit to New York, where we are joined by North American managing agent and producer Bianca Bramham. Bianca, you complete us. Welcome back. What have we missed in New York since we last spoke? Well, football season's back. Watch football. Yeah, fo- footy ball. I don't know. Is I'm that a thing that you're excited about? Wait, wait, hold on. We, 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 need to do, we need to strain this thing out. What se- football season is back? Oh, as in gridiron. <laughs> the NFL. Is that what you call the it? NFL. I don't know. You're American. Well, our football, Australian rules football season, is, is coming to up. an end. Yes. Indeed. I'm hoping to watch the game. It's. I think it's being broadcast at midnight. I'm actually not. I'm going to run a five kilometer the next day and I don't really care. So I'm choosing my health and fitness over footy. Over someone else's. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting ready to actually fly to LA tomorrow, which will be a nice change of scenery, doing some meetings over there. So I'm looking forward to that and getting out of muggy old New York City for a minute. How are you guys? I am fantastic. I'm just here, just I'm kind of just getting Laura all psyched up for the morning. Woo-hoo. Laura, how are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, I'm so psyched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh that is all genuine. I'm all right. I'm sleepy. It's a sleepy start to the day for me. I'll build up as we go. Micah and I went last night with my dad to a beautiful restaurant just near here, and we did like an eight-course degustation. Oh, I saw that. What was this black ice cube of a dessert? It looked Look, amazing. It was, this was it conceptual was ice cream. It was full MasterChef. <laughs> it was great. It was like a, a coated like white chocolate block, and they just put it down and they said, the black box and they didn't tell us anything and we were like okay and they gave us these little mallets and then we like smashed them open and it was delicious but it was really hard to figure out what the bits were and at the end I asked them I was like can you can you tell us and they were like you have to guess like what do you reckon they were and we guessed really well we were very close but in the end it was like these like frozen buttermilk droplets with like hazelnut cream and like these sort of frozen balls of pear and like yeah white chocolate and mint and this like salted caramel cookie it was so good wow I mean you could almost say that you were collecting a piece of conceptual art in in your your stomach Oh my God, Jeremy, the segues are getting worse and worse and I think they're getting better and better. (laughs) I think we should use that to jump into our very first link of the week, which you have brought to us from the phenomenal Artsy, which I just want to say has one. I don't, speaking of conceptual art, I think their website has a bit of a conceptual art approach where, (laughs) so they have a footer, right? Yeah. And with like different menu links that I want to click. And on the tablet, they also have infinite scroll. So you scroll to the bottom of the article and you want to click something on the footer and then it brings up another article. That is one of my You can never tap on the thing you want to tap. That's weird because on the on the desktop version, the menu's just at the top. No, no, this is the sub this is like this a sub menu. You know how there's a footer menu that says like you have to scroll because you have to scroll to the bottom, but you have to kind of race to get it, and then you can't click it in time because it's loading the other article. <laughs> to be anyway, honest, like I can't tell of, if a this lot is- of media websites like have the same thing because I usually scroll down to try and find their contact details or their address or something, and they all have the same thing. So some designer is like needs to. It's crazy. Yeah, it's so it's like such a basic thing. Anyway, I should have saved that for thumbs up, thumbs down, <laughs> which we'll get to at the end of the episode. 
But sorry, Laura, to um, rudely interrupt your link. Tell us a bit more about why you chose this. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I love Artsy. I think it's like it's an insight into the world of sort of major gallery wheeling and dealing, you know, in which I normally feel like a a total outsider. And I I like to read it and sort of pretend that I can relate to any of the content. But um, this piece was a great read. It's written by Nate Freeman, who's one of their senior art reporters. And it's a look at the notion of art collecting when it comes to conceptual art. And it opens with this amazing anecdote about a couple of art collectors named Herb and Dorothy Vogel. And I mean, the name Herb in itself, that's just great. But yeah, in 1970, they spent like 250 bucks, which is roughly $1,667 by today's (laughs) rates. And they bought a work of art that can never be displayed and in some senses sort of never really existed in the first place. And the work was a performance piece by Robert Barry called Closed Gallery, where uh, various galleries in Amsterdam, Turin and LA followed his instructions to close the gallery space for the duration of their respective Robert Barry shows. So the show was that there was no show. And in exchange for their money, Herb and Dorothy, they received a certificate of authenticity and three copies of the show invitation, which simply read like, during the exhibition, the gallery will be closed. Closed. But yeah, despite this, Herb told New York Magazine in 1975 that they now owned, without a doubt, the greatest piece of conceptual art in the world. And I think this is, it's fascinating because you start to get into all these questions of ownership and the value of ideas versus physical objects and also questions about wealth and class and statements of status and also questions about the sort of inherent anti-commercial nature of conceptual works and how that applies in practice to the art market. So the article itself starts to sort of think about how collectors address the practicalities of purchasing and, and living with a work of art that is sometimes not even actually visible to the naked eye. You know, how the hell do you even assemble a contract for that sort of thing and then hold on to the certificate that actually proves that authenticity and and how do you store the work even if, you know, if it is actually something that can be stored or installed and, and why do people pay real money for things that are purely conceptual. And there are a few examples in the article of of conceptual works that I found really interesting. So it's definitely worth a read because there's lots of pieces in here that they mentioned, but some of my favorites, um, for example, Edward Keinholz, who actually coined the term conceptual art in the early 50s. He developed this series of works that he called Concept Tableau, where the premise was that someone would buy the idea first and then he would make it. And so first there would basically be like a $10,000 fee or around 80000 in today's currency. So it's definitely, it's, it's inflated for the ownership of the idea, which they'd have in text form only. And then from, from there, the buyer does own that concept and they could theoretically, they could go sell it on the secondary market if they, if they wanted to. Or they can pay a further $1,000 for Keinholz to then deliver a sketch of the project. And then the third and final fee would be the cost of the, the materials and the wage for the artist to actually construct the piece. So this it's is, not until this that. This is blowing my mind for new business models. So I, 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 I 100%. <laughs> Hey, Jeremy, I think I want to rewrite my Jackie Winter contract. Um, I'm going to sell you the idea of me working for you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I already do that. Nah, the piece, I mean, yeah, the piece itself as well, it was like, a, it's not just like the concept, the, the selling idea that was wacky. The piece itself was like pretty nuts. Like it, it was proposed as this like 15 by 40 foot tableau of like five foot thick concrete that was going to be placed in this town called Hope in Idaho. And then visitors could write whatever they wanted to on the block. And then once it was completely covered in writing, Kindhold would place another slab of concrete on top, effectively like concealing everything. So it's basically just a block of concrete. And I guess you know in your head that there's writing in there, but yeah. Anyway, he didn't actually sell that particular concept. Um, I guess in the 50s, sort of buyers were not 
quite ready yet to pay sort of serious money for work that so sort of flagrantly questioned. But it's happening now? Yes. So then sort of a bit further on by the 1970s, collectors were definitely looking for more of these kinds of works and artists were finding ways to sell them despite the sort of anti-capitalist sentiments that were supposed to embody these works. And there were major conceptualists selling works for big money and they were represented by and showing in some of the world's most prestigious galleries, which I think is is really interesting because conceptual work, of course, makes it a lot harder for a gallery to actually sell any work and therefore actually make any sort of profit from the show, which is, I guess, how a gallery runs. So their interest in, this is assuming the gallery doesn't have like a ticket price or, you know, but their interest in these types of shows must sort of be evident of, of some kind of shift in the market demand to actually buy pieces like this. And then you get to the sort of the 1980s and the market grew large enough that Christie's actually held an auction that included this wall drawing by Sol LeWitt called um, 10,000 Lines About 10 Inches Long Covering a Wall Evenly. <laughs> it's a pretty descriptive oh, title. Oh, gosh. Some of my favourite pieces, like I think a lot of this kind of work from Sol is in Deer Beacon up in upstate New York. It's just yes, so wonderful. Yeah. Well, I, that's the thing. I really, really enjoy experiencing it, but buying it would be a different thing, I guess. And and this was the first time that a work of conceptual art had ever been sold at auction. And, you know, the highest bidder basically won the right to reproduce the work in, in the location of their choosing. But beyond that concept itself, they, went, they weren't really purchasing much else. And then you fast forward to like 2012 and there's this big collector in Puerto Rico and he alleged that he'd in fact had a Lewitt wall painting stolen from him, which like given the nature of the work is, is, is a really strange idea. And he actually sued the Chicago art dealer that he'd done the sale through for $1.4 million in the New York State Supreme Court, alleging that she'd lost a certificate of authenticity for the wall painting that he'd consigned to her um, a few years earlier. And, and the thing is with these certificates, they can't just be reissued. Like that's the whole point of a certificate of authenticity. Like if there's more than one out there, it, it raises the question of which one is real and it kind of cancels them all out. And because the art dealer's insurance company refused to cover it, the collector kind of had no option but to, to sue to recover the amount that the certificate could have potentially been sold for elsewhere. And eventually they arrived at an undisclosed settlement, which is annoying. I'd love to know what they paid. But since then, it's interesting, like some insurance companies have actually moved to create clauses that would protect works of conceptual art, which I guess sort of it further encourages the world to treat conceptual art as a, as a valuable, tangible asset and not just the sort of radical anti-commercial stuff that it originally started out as. And when you do read more into the artists who were sort of pushing this kind of work in the early days, it was really meant as like a, almost like a Marxist anti-capitalist statement. And I think my favorite anecdote in here, um, although as I said, there are many good ones, it's about a performative work done by New York artist Darren Bader, um, who does lots of, lots of interesting pieces. And he basically set up an Indiegogo account and he asked people to donate however much they wanted. And then once the donation period ended, he auctioned off the amount raised at Christie's, right? So they raised about 10,322 pounds in total, whatever that is in dollars. I don't know. Didn't do that work. And it sold for 12,500 pounds. So again, for anyone who didn't catch that, the bidder bought 10,500 pounds for 12,500 pounds, which I mean, the money went to charity. Like that's a good thing. But still like the person who bought it, they were buying it because it was a work of art by beta, you know, like this money had moved from being just currency to being a conceptual piece of art, which is crazy because he didn't really do anything except that he organized it, he, the artist, and then it became this like performance piece, you know, and 
I guess some of this reminds me a bit about the discussions we were having way back with uh, with Quran, I think, about digital artworks and artworks that are sort of bought and owned through blockchain technologies with no real physical manifestation and how you assign value to those sorts of things. And I wanted to just get your guys' thoughts on this piece and on conceptual art in general. And I mean, B, what, what did you think of all this? All I could think about was whatever happened with that Wu-Tang album where they produced the album and then that... What are you talking? Martin Shrelecki brought That's bought it. That's Shrelly. Shrelly. So he still owns it, but wasn't there like a whole like uproar on the internet to try and buy it back? Well, there, yeah, there, and then wasn't he going to do something? He was going to like burn it, <laughs> or something. he was going to. I mean, there's so much of a. I also can barely tell Elon Musk and Martin Shkreli apart. Just really, side note, like they look the same. They look nothing alike. They look the same. Moving on, rich white scientists. <laughs> I think this is scientists. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh God, this all makes kind of total sense in terms of where. I guess our culture is moving in terms of where we kind of place value on experiences and stories more than kind of physical objects in that way. Because even though you're not, well, look, in, in all the cases, like with solo, like, yeah, you are, like the certificate effectively is the physical manifestation of the work, but you are buying kind of a story in a way as well. And I love the fact that like, not only like in the beta example, in, it's, not only does the buyer become part of the story, but everyone who contributed money is part of the story as well. So I love the fact that it's creating a much more kind of communal piece of work. I'm part of one of these for author named Shelley Jackson. She did something called The Skin Project, where basically you wrote to Shelley yeah. and you got a word and then you had to get that word tattooed on you. And oh, so, like yeah, so I have, I have the word I got was remember with a comma. Oh, I've, I've always, always wondered why you have that on your I've wrist. I've always wondered yeah, as so well. I, I was like, what are you forgetting? <laughs> <laughs> I got a little kind of receipt for it that kind of gave my word to it. And I kind of had to write to her and explain kind of why I wanted the word. So I have this receipt now, which is kind of, you know, me being part of the work. Now, the funny thing is, I don't know if actually, I don't know if the book actually got made. So the whole point was everyone was supposed <laughs> to get a word and then it was going to, you photographed it and then the book was going to be put together. But I think people then started kind of dying or she didn't get like the photos of it. <laughs> and so, well, th- there's thousands of people that yeah. are part of it. Anyway, so I kind of, and this is a great example where, you know, there was no, no funds exchange, you know, but maybe, you know, the book would have been sold and that would have kind of funded, but it relied on the community in that way. So I think that, yeah, there is a lot of value in being able to kind of tell this kind of story, even just as we're kind of talking about it now. And so I think there's a, there is a huge amount of value on it, whether or not it's kind of, you know, six figures or the $250 that the Vogels kind of spend. Yeah. I mean, I think the, like, I, I definitely love the, the communal aspect of it and the fact that it can involve lots of people and it can be something that isn't necessarily like really expensive to undertake or or there can be a really low barrier to entry as well for people who might not necessarily partake in the arts. I think there's also some sort of hilarity and also some sort of, I mean, I guess maybe questionable side of like, I mean, I was reading ages ago these pieces about how wellness, health and wellness has become the new sort of status symbol for for people with money, right? And it's gone less from buying flashy things like cars and mansions, whatever, that really sort of explicitly show your wealth to things that are a little bit more um, concealed. And, and it might be education, it might be travel. And, and there's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it has, there are certain things that where people will buy whatever, $2,000 gem water or whatever, because it's, it's a, a health thing. And I think to some extent, buying conceptual art kind of falls into that category. Like it's people who can afford to spend ridiculous amounts of money on things that they don't actually, compared to people who would never have the luxury of spending money on something where you actually don't get a physical object in exchange. The activated almonds of the art industry. (laughs) But it does, I think it does, at the same time, that helps to propel and helps the people creating the work to live and thrive and whatever. So that like, I'm not mad about that. That's how the art world works. But like, I think there is something in that. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there, definitely. I think a thing that resonates with me, especially was 
that you were talking about in the article of, of the artist that was kind of selling the work in stages and how that is kind of so similar to how we work as producers yes. and how that works in applied arts as well. And I kind of think that this kind of also shows a it's just kind of a reflection of the value that's placed in concepts and thinking in general, like, you know, purely like the rise of strategy in advertising and in design to kind of sell the thinking behind an idea over the kind of execution. Because when everyone can kind of be an artist or kind of be a paint or, or, or paint or kind of capture an image, yeah, what's the kind of thing that sets it apart? It is kind of the story behind it. So I think it's interesting. I was really interested to see how they price that as well. And maybe that is something we'll work into our business. But also, like, I think there's there's where people and myself, I don't know where I draw the line, but I think a lot, there's lots of people that might enjoy conceptual art and, and see the value in purchasing it. But then there's also, there's conceptual art that's like, okay, some of like Solowitz pieces that are, they're these huge works of art that like, you know, maybe huge wall pieces or huge installations or whatever. That, Quite immersive. Yeah, yeah. But they're, there, there is like a creative idea that people are experiencing and, blah, blah, you know, like there's been work that's put into it. And then there's the conceptual art that is like someone takes a bottle cap off the ground and they say this is art and they sell it, you know? And it's like the the line, I can't figure out whether I appreciate that or not. <laughs> yeah, the one for me is like like purchasing video art and being the sole owner of a video art piece and, and not like I guess not being able to like I, I guess being like there might be restrictions on where you can show that. But I think personally for me, I don't like video art, so I would never purchase it. I liked the ones that were like um dance performance. Like you could purchase you were the only person who could see it. You can film it, you can recreate it, you can whatever, but you were the only person who got to see it. Again, I mean that's kind of sad like to not share that with people. But, but I, at the same time, that's like a very rebellious act at the moment. Like even open tabs, like which um you know, we do, we don't document, we don't kind of like put it out there. And I think it's specific to make sure those kind of experiences are mm. kind of, you know, sacred kind of in yeah, that completely. way. I mean, B, there's, there's so much to kind of talk about here. You're in kind of the conceptual art capital of the world. Do you have any kind of final closing thoughts on this piece at all? Uh, no. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. No. Sorry, I can't, I can't wrap this up. That's okay. We'll just kind of take your silence as a conceptual way to move on to the next link. How's that segue? Yeah, nailed That's it, good. Yeah, nailed, nailed it. it again. Excellent. Thank you, Laura, for bringing this up. And we will move on from here. Next up is my link for the week. And this actually came to me from Secret Slacks, but one of our Slacks with Yasmin are part of our legal counsel at Media Arts Lawyers. How many Slack teams are you guys part of? I am part of like five, but I think four of them are Jackie Winter ones. <laughs> Fair enough. Or three of, yeah. I think I'm a part of like six and like four of them are Jackie Winter ones. Because you're, you're on Ladies Get Paid. They have a Slack. I'm not on Ladies Get Paid. Oh, sorry. I'm on Make Nice. Make Nice. I'm on Boom. Yep. And then... All the rest are Jackie Winter ones. <laughs> and Bianca, <laughs> you're, over my life. you're active on a few extracurricular ones as well. Is that right? Yeah, I just, I was just added to Hundreds Under 100, which is my new favorite thing to, so shout out to my friend Noemi for inviting me and Carly Ayers, who was on the show, who. So there are only a hundred people there who are under the age of a hundred. Is that how it works? No, hundreds. Oh, hundreds. There's so hundreds. hundreds. Okay. Yeah. Like, did they kick someone out to like add you in? That's brutal. <laughs> anyway. It's brutal. I, yeah, that's actually a great idea. Survival. Um, Tribe has spoken. <laughs> so, yes. So, I mean, I, I love, you know, the fact that, you know, our whole business is based around networks and, you know, we have all these kind of different ways to interface with them. And this came to me from Yasmin. It's from a company called Oricon, who are, I don't know how to kind of... Had you heard of them before? Never heard of them before. Yeah, I got no clue. Who um, and it's one of those businesses that I look at, they're like, okay, they're obviously making lots of money. What's Something to do with engineering. Digitizing infrastructure. Who knows? But they, ha they claim to, or they have, launched Australia's first 
visual employment contract. Um, and this was in May. And I immediately looked at this and I'm like, okay, it's this was so interesting to me because it's something that I hadn't kind of seen before. We have kind of always kind of struggled with our terms and conditions kind of being the, you know, the foundation of everything that we kind of do, both when we're setting up kind of a new job with the client or even me when kind of we're actually employing people, which is closer to what this piece is about. But, you know, terms and conditions and end user license agreements, all these things dictate so much of our world as consumers as well, whenever we're kind of engaging kind of with products and or with kind of various services. And the big joke is that nobody ever kind of reads them or kind of understands kind of what they're doing or understands kind of what they're giving away. So what have they done here? What they've done here is effectively, I mean, look, the, what they've effectively done is turned into a comic. I think that's kind of the most basic way to put it is that instead of having a purely written form of a contract, they've augmented it with illustration to try to I guess use the inherent power of that kind of storytelling to get these and they're more still, complex they're points legally across. binding contracts. Well, yes, I mean th- that's kind of the this article, which is actually kind of more of a press release, you know, because this article comes from the Oricon website. It right? comes from the Oricon yeah. website, and you know, fair enough. I don't know who else is going to kind of be covering this or championing it because it's something that you actually won't to see unless you work for Oricon. But they kind of say. They they end kind of saying, is it enforceable? So, you know, lawyers define a contract as something that's legally binding that can be taken to a court. And the thing that we've learned with all of our kind of terms and conditions is, yeah, like there it, there never is a kind of solid answer to anything. Like even if things are kind of settled law, you go, anything can kind of be challenged. So the whole idea of a contract is setting things up in a way that sets expectations and it gives you the best chance if it does have to be challenged. And so Professor Camilla Anderson says, we strongly believe there's no reason why a contract like this can't be equally enforceable simply because there are pictures in simple language instead of detailed legal terms. But again, until it's actually enforced in court, they can't know for sure. And I kind of think this is, I get a kind of similar feeling with this in terms of where it could go as when we kind of saw the rise of graphic recording and scribing. And I think that kind of it was a bit of kind of a niche thing and you kind of saw a few people doing and now kind of all of a sudden it's kind of everywhere. And I don't know kind of where they got this idea from. It seems kind of very basic, but I mean, I really kind of love it. And I just kind of thought like this is, this could effectively open up kind of a new vein, you know, for artists kind of in this way or kind of new services. But I think it's also could be a great way for anyone, whether your businesses or kind of freelancers to describe their services and kind of set out these kind of these ground rules, because you could kind of say like, yeah, that any anytime you are in a professional engagement, you're, you're playing a game. And, and there's no kind of, you know, the, the contract is what defines the rules and kind of how you're actually gonna gonna play. It's interesting, they say they that they partnered with a visual contracting specialist, who's this Professor Camilla Anderson, who is from um, the University of Western Australia. So it must be a thing that exists if she's someone who's like, <laughs> <"Yeah."> <laughs> it must but like, but I also kind of think, you know, this gets into this is it is in kind of a bit of a not an uncanny valley, but it's in a weird kind of spot where the illustrations are so bad. Oh, yeah. And I think this is kind of a problem that I have when when talking to a lot of artists who want to work in conceptual illustration. You see this a lot in political cartoons where basically you have someone who's maybe a half decent artist, but they actually can't think conceptually. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you just have kind of standards and you just have like a big bag of money and says like ATO and then like, you know, just a big it's like the metaphors are so obvious. But I, I don't know if there's room for a kind 
kind of Christoph Neiman style kind of conceptual illustration around these concepts. Like they need to be kind of really clear. Well, that's the whole, the whole point of doing this is that it becomes clear. I mean, we, it simplifies it. it. So we did kind of, um, you know, a few years ago, we did something called an animation called uh, steps. I don't know how many steps to project perfection were seven Seven. steps. We'll link to that um, in the show notes. I'm seeking. We've learned over our time that there are only seven (laughs) steps (laughs) on the road to project perfection. (laughs) But this is something that I, I mean, this is one of the things I'm kind of proudest of in terms of how we were able to kind of take these things and talk about revisions and kind of points of contact and, you know, and how to, and open briefs and kind of all these things we put together in an animation. Because it's so good. And I never know if anyone watches it. There are thousands of views on YouTube and, you know, you have to, uh, you have to. Why are we going viral? We don't. Next week. (laughs) The puzzle's gone viral. We've got one on there. Keeping it sustainable. But I thought it was interesting as well, picking up from last week where we were talking about skim reading and how a new form of literacy needed to emerge. And this seems like a really novel approach, which directly addresses the issue. So yeah, I'm curious. Do you guys agree? Or is this kind of just a passing fad? Well, I don't think it's a new form of literacy. I mean, it's taking an existing form of literacy, basically, you know, like children's picture books or comic books and and applying it to contracts, which are normally, as you were saying, these incredibly sort of verbose, full of legalese, very, very boring. And and I I mean, I love this concept. I think every time we talk about anything like this, where we're considering the sort of form and style and and complexity and, and delivery of written works, it all comes down to the purpose of the work, right? So here you've got employment contracts, something which is very important for the employee to understand, you know, important to both the employee and the person employing them. You know, traditionally we've delivered these in a way that is so impenetrable to someone, anyone who hasn't studied years of contract law that, you know, they essentially sort of render themselves totally useless until, yeah, they have to be enforced in a court of law, of course, in which case, you know, the offending employee may have no idea what they were potentially breaching because they didn't understand what they were signing in the first place. But I think it's a great idea to be simplifying them so people can understand stuff. I mean, we've done a similar thing in just that like our our terms have the legalese but also have an explanation in plain English. And I think that that already goes a long way to doing this sort of thing. But with a lot of contracts, what's kind of not acknowledged here is like the point is that they're complex. Like they don't want people to understand them because if more people understood the extent of what they were signing away each time that they clicked agree on a set of terms and conditions, then a lot less people would click agree. And I guess, you know, in terms of general public, it's a great thing that more people could understand this stuff. But in terms of, I mean, business in general, like you were saying before, like with contracts, you sort of, you were saying like everything can be challenged, but you try to write a contract to give you the best possible chance in case it ever had to be challenged, right? So you include, as a company, you include all these sorts of clauses that cover all bases that might be like pretty outlandish and things that would probably never happen, but you have to include them in case something happened. And could you still do that if those things were really clear to people? Bianca, what do you reckon? I was a little bit torn because for me, like contracts are serious business with serious, like potentially serious consequences if they're breached. So I kind of don't mind that they're presented in a way that is boring, that is in lawyer speak, um, because they should be treated seriously. But that being said, like it's part of my job to know how to read a contract and when the contract is, I guess, like above what I can understand or what I've what I've come across it, like in my experience, then I go to a lawyer and, and I have that availability. Like we have a great partnership with a law firm who have our backs on these kinds of things. But I do get that the language of contracts can be intimidating and can be written in a way that is that benefits the 
the contract writer rather than the reader. So I do agree that some kind of translation and simplification into layman's terms is necessary to help level the playing field because otherwise you might just get someone like, I think contract law in for employees is very different to maybe what, in my experience, working more in creative when we're talking more about like project agreements and like IP law and all that sort of thing. Like it is really important that you understand what you're getting yourself into. So if if there is a way to kind of like translate that into layman's terms and simplify it, like I'm all for that, but I didn't love the comic book style approach. Like for me, it's just too naive. And I, Lara, you touched on it before. Like I prefer something that's similar to what we've done with our own terms and conditions where we've kind of like pulled out certain parts and and almost translated them like in layman's terms in like plain speak like this is what this means yeah I I agree I agree with that and I think it is I think it's important that people like I think it's a a right that everyone should have to understand what they're signing like I think that should be a basic sort of and I think people are just more digitally literate as well and so they and they want to have that understanding they want to kind of under they want to know especially if they're giving away their kind of rights in any yeah, way. Yeah, completely. Know. Like I think about even when I started here like five years ago, like I had to get my dad to read my contract because I was like, ah, like I don't know what this is. But like I still got someone to read it. But I think a lot of people just, they just assume or they don't have access to someone who might understand that stuff. And I mean, obviously, yeah, I signed my soul away to Jeremy and you now own it for eternity. <laughs> uh, crossroads. <laughs> well, I, just, well I, th- I was actually thinking, I was thinking about a story that, that someone told me that lives in Berlin, like an Australian living in Berlin. And yeah, every, you know, letter that they, and I live, obviously I live in America, which is a very bureaucratic and very risk kind of averse place. So, you know, the kind of like every sort of any agreement that you get into is set up in a way to avoid someone from suing you. Like even, you know, like even the signs that are in a bathroom at a restaurant that say like employees must wash hands before going back to work. Like they don't exist in Australia because of culturally like what America is kind of like. But I just remember so insane. Who the hell needs reminding that you've got to wash your hands? Well, it's just in case something happens and then it's like, oh, well, the onus is now off the restaurant because the, I don't know. Anyway. I think the bottom line is once you get into the territory where you actually have to enforce a contract, it's too late. You know, so the whole idea of this is kind of being a bit of a preemptive measure because I think that that from our perspective, yeah, like I, I think contracts often can just be kind of this thing that's tacked on to the back of, you know, something else where I think it's more important to be more holistically part of the whole project that's kind of talking about really kind of important things. So by the time, you know, the questions kind of come up about like, you know, kill fees or kind of liability or insurance, like they've already kind of been dealt with, but it does, it does rely on both people kind of reading it. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing. And on another note, like just from a like PR perspective, I have to say, like, this does make me think quite positively of Oricon, like, as a company who care about the fact that their employees understand their agreements. I think that's a good thing. And if this is nothing more than a PR stunt, I think that's, that's good. And that might attract pe- certain types of people to their company. Yeah. I mean, there was this really nice quote, we should live in a world where contracts are written in an inaccessible language, where people truly understand and feel comfortable signing an employment contract, a world where relationships are set up to succeed by aligning expectations and developing the right culture at the outset, which is exactly what you were kind of saying, Jeremy, like, yeah, set up the project for success in the beginning. Indeed. Well, look, this is a really interesting new form of kind of art and commerce and the two interacting in a, in a really, yeah, in a really new way. So I'd love to hear from anyone else who might have any kind of other examples or has seen this kind of used in different ways. You can email us at podcast at jackiewinter.com. Shoot us a note and let us know, but we will move on from here.
And our final link for the week comes from Ubianca. These are some oldies but goodies in some ways. I'm really pleased to kind of see this come up, especially this as is we from kind 10 of- days ago. Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. Are, Do you move that fast, Jeremy? <laughs> I was no, looking at... Uh, so sorry, I was week, Laura, 10 so days. <laughs> One that, yet yeah, 10 days is an eternity in internet speak, but also, sorry, there was a second link here but from Super Friendly, which is actually kind of relevant talking about contracts as well. But B, I'll hand it over to you. You tell us a bit about these. What are they? Why did you pick them? Well, my link for the week is a blog post by Dan Moll, who is a creative director, advisor, and founder of the creative agency Super Friendly. And if you are unfamiliar with Super Friendly, they have one of the best contact pages in the history of contact pages. So I'll post a link in the show notes as it's well worth a read. It kind of goes and Dan through. Dan like, also wrote a uh, pricing design, right? The yes, book that we he went did. over on the podcast like way back when in like the first yeah, 10 episodes. So Dan, or something. He writes a lot about client service or a lot of the behind the scenes kind of things that we talk about here on the podcast. So he is one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. So Naturally, I found this article there 10 days ago when he posted it. Um, and the post is titled, A Portfolio Hiring Managers Can't Deny. And it is, it's really just a succinct and useful guide on creating a successful design portfolio. The advice that he gives is pretty much like it's very geared towards someone who might be applying for their dream role. But I really agreed with a lot of what he had to say. And a lot of it is common sense, but he shares some really solid advice on how to actually present yourself and your work to prospective employers, which I thought like a lot of it could be applied to our own work as producers when we're presenting to prospective commissioners, or it can be applied to individual artists when perhaps applying for representation, or even if you are kind of like in the throes of the design process or the creative process or the advertising process and you're like presenting your work up the approval chain and are trying to get something signed off. So I was, I was, I mean, I'm just curious for you two, like, was there any particular advice in this that stood out for you? I have to say, this is so dumb, but so I was reading this very late last night and the title is a portfolio that hiring managers can't deny. And I just got stuck in my head on loop, like the, for he's a jolly good fellow, you know, <laughs> hiring managers can't deny. Um, <laughs> And like it's been in my head since then, so I blame you. It's up to all of us. <laughs> exactly. I love Dan Moore. I think some of his writing is so great, and Pricing Designs is an amazing book. And uh, I also loved like really recently he um he just like posted this post on his website, which I think this is really lovely. Like he had tweeted about trying to find an illustrator that was a, a woman or person of color and or person of color for an illustration job that he had, and he was sort of inundated with links to portfolios and things and so he just did this post on his blog like sharing all of these amazing portfolios that he got and that was that and i just I loved I actually loved that that the title of that piece was just illustrators yeah it, that was really cool yeah i mean in general i mean i think this was a great find b and i don't know that it is necessarily common sense i think putting together a good proposal or portfolio whatever you want to call it is definitely a learned skill and i think he shares some pretty strong advice here and i think the main point here is that with anything that you're presenting where you're trying to get someone to take a certain action be that you know hiring you or commissioning a project or signing off on an idea or whatever it is the thing that you're proposing to them has to be them focused which is a thing we talk a lot about with with the wonderful joe hook who was on the show a while ago and who's our sort of communications coach here but um you sort of have to think about why they would care about anything you're showing them like how does it help them how does it make their lives easier and and i guess it's not just a brag parade for you it doesn't matter if something is cool or impressive if it doesn't demonstrate how it would actually apply to their situation and i think about when we've sort of been hiring and and like the most 
amazing thing is when you see someone who has really clearly done their research and properly read just like the job description, whatever. And regardless of whatever their experience may be or what projects they might've worked on, they have highlighted why those experiences, why those skills, why that knowledge is relevant to our situation. And I think that's, that's the really key thing here. Um, one of the quotes I liked, he says, um, you know, therefore the first step in crafting a great portfolio is identifying what job you're actually trying to get. Half of that is identifying the company you'd like to work for. The other half is identifying the specific job you want at that company. Once you know those things, you can create a specific message that addresses why you'd be a great fit for that job at that company. And then he says, um, though the specific criteria will likely vary, it can often be summarized like this. How easily can I see already this person working here? A great portfolio answers that question as clearly as possible before any in-person interviews. And I think that's that's really key. Yeah, I think there's no difference between a portfolio and applying for a job and you know making a pitch or making a presentation you know to win kind of new business. And you would never like do the same thing twice. Obviously, when you're presenting credentials, like, you know, sometimes you have a bit of, you know, a bit of a master document and you're presenting that over and over. But still, even when we still do and have kind of physical, we have some physical books and we also have, you know, our iPad Pro presentation and we always customize that, you know, you take out pages that aren't relevant and put things that are in. And even I think though, even if you're using the same resume or the same folio or whatever, like, the the point is making sure that the annotations you include, or if you're presenting in person, what you actually say to them is specific to the role that you're applying for, yes, or the thing that you're trying that. to get done. Exactly. Like you're looking at things that they've outlined in their job description that are important to them. And you're saying like, this project I did with blah, blah, I, you know, and they've said that they want someone who can manage a team of digital designers, whatever. And you said like, here, I worked with a team of digital designers to do blah, 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 blah. And if you're presenting that same thing to another person, it might be like, uh, here I had to engage with third-party suppliers and blah, blah. like it's whatever the thing is that is relevant from that project. And like, I guess like with everything that we ever discuss on this show, it comes down to language and a proficiency in tailoring your communications to suit whoever it is that you're speaking to and the action that you're trying to convince them to take. I guess there's also, there's two perspectives here that I want to kind of add to. Like, you know, one, there's kind of the employer perspective and looking, you know, at hiring staff. And then there's the artist perspective B, which I want to kind of hear a bit more from you kind of looking at submissions. I think while so much of the onus kind of goes on the applicant here, I think we cannot forget the huge amount of responsibility that the actual companies take. And I think that's what really hasn't been addressed much. I think Basecamp sometimes kind of does that in a way in terms of how they talk about their hiring culture and especially how they, um, you know, like I love looking at Basecamp job ads because they actually put the work in to make sure that the job, for a new ad, job Jeremy. I love a new job. Honestly, I love I do <laughs> actually I do love looking at job ads just to kind of get a sense of yeah, I think you can tell a lot about a company about how they you can. Like but, a but lot think, of them are so kind of like like a lot that I kind of come across are just like so uh, brief. Where that's you know, like that's in what, contrast, that's the, like the way that we present our job ads, like I think gives a really incredible picture about who we are in the company. Full novel each time. <laughs> well, well, I think you know, for me, like a lot of a lot, of, I think anyone who runs a business is always like you know, it's a lot like parenting. You're always trying to correct the mistakes that you know, your parents kind of made, and, and I think you know, starting a business. Well, you're starting a business, you're always kind of trying, like, or for me, like, I'm trying to, like, like you know, you, you look to positive influences and you look for a bad experience that you had and say, like, well, I don't want other people to kind of experience that. And I kind of think sometimes people think, I think it also depends on the market. Like, if you're looking to, and I think the reason why 
IT and tech companies have got this right is because there's such a dry well of talent. People need to attract talent, so they're going to put extra effort into what the recruitment process is like. But if there's something like graphic design where it's like there's so many designers, I think this is like, ah, well, I'm just going to throw it out there and going to see yeah, kind of looking what for comes a graphic back. designer. Exactly. <laughs> Send and, email. And I think that kind of attitude and that kind of setup is going to facilitate a whole culture of graduates who are just kind of firing out, you know, CVs and things like that. But I think if you actively craft your role and kind of give people the opportunity and kind of say that you want this, this is going to kind of encourage that. So I think that's an incredibly good point. I think definitely for employers should be taking that sort of thing into account. Although I guess, yeah, as the person looking for the job, you don't have control over that. So you kind of have to sort of put your best foot forward regardless of the situation. B, give us an agent perspective, like, you know, from kind of folio submissions. Is there anything that could apply there with that? Oh, gosh, like the number one is just do your research. (laughs) I mean, number one, there is no Jackie. I don't know who Jackie is, but Jackie does not exist. No, we know who Jackie is, but Jackie Winter is an Australian robin. It's a little bird. It's not a person. So It's also spelled J-A-C-K-Y, not (laughs) J-A-C-K-I-E. Doing, I think, like definitely tailoring your folio to who you're presenting to is number one. That's my biggest pet peeve when receiving, you know, there's only, especially in Australia, there's only like a very small handful of agencies that will represent illustrators and you have like, you know, first impressions do count. So yeah, take, take that time uh, to do your research. No, no, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, like I'm, the research is a big one because we spend a lot of time thinking of this. That's why we made a whole kind of FAQ. Most people have kind of submission guidelines. I mean, if you're submitting anything kind of cold, there's always kind of a way to do it. But yeah, like, and it's, it's that's that's why it, there is kind of, kind of some common sense there. Like, I think as well, like uh, one point that he makes, which I think is good. And this is, again, this applies only if you're, we're talking about like sort of your, the big career jobs, dream jobs, whatever. Not like if you're wanting to work at, as a waitress or something. Like I totally understand that you're not going to put this kind of time and effort into certain jobs jobs, not to discount waitressing, a lot of people do career career waiting and it's amazing, but not talking about like random part-time jobs. But he says here, it's difficult enough to create one portfolio, you know, tripling or quadrupling that effort seems virtually impossible, but let's sort of appropriately qualify expectations. You're looking for a hiring manager to agree to pay you tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars a year based on something that you whip together in a weekend. So a good portfolio is an investment. And, you know, that larger initial loss, the larger the initial loss that you can take in terms of how much effort you can put in, the larger the potential for gain at the end of that process. And I think that's a valid point. It's also a bit dangerous, though, as well, like that kind of thinking in terms of, yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, well, does that mean, you know, that's kind of, is that the kind of a free pitch situation like you reckon? Oh, shit. You're right. (laughs) You're right. I mean, because it's the same kind of mentality of kind of like dangling this kind of carrot. So, But look, there is definitely kind of validity there, but I kind of think there needs to be kind of a middle way. And I I think really the thrust of this article is just kind of, it's just basic kind of consideration. But I think, yeah, my point is that it has to come both ways. It's not only just about what the employee puts together. The, you know, if you want to get that kind of response, then you have to kind of give that kind of framework or opportunity. Totally. And I think the other thing I just wanted to mention quickly is that like often it's like, this is all well and good if you have like, your resume, your experience is like, I worked at Adobe and then I worked at Netflix and then I worked at, you know, like you've got this amazing track record, but I don't think that's necessarily like imperative. You can have like, okay. So one of the examples I pull out is this woman, Francine, who put together this like microsite to apply at Spotify and it's, it's worth having a look. We'll link to it. And um, she's gone to an enormous amount of effort, right? She clearly is like dying to work there and it's, it's an amazing application. But the thing that I really, I really liked looking at this was that 
when you go through, she actually only mentions really this one role where she was like an events and marketing coordinator. And then she's got all these different points about how, the, you know, she managed like content management and did like lifestyle marketing and brand strategy and blah, blah, blah. But she's only talking about the one role, but she's she's managed to like flesh it out and sort of get a whole lot from this one job. So you don't necessarily have to have this like crazy track record of like millions of jobs, as long as you can show how what your experience is, whatever that experience may be, can apply to their specific situation. That's the key. And again, I think if we want to kind of come back to Basecamp on this, another thing, amazing thing that they do is you know, when people get jobs there, they usually kind of do guest posts and they, they talk about it and they actually kind of present some of the applications that they did. So those are just some additional links that we'll kind of throw in there on our show notes, as well as some other stuff that Bianca, you've um, pulled out from Super Friendly and Dan's site. So again, you can get the links to that at our podcast-specific newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter, or if you're watching this in an enhanced podcast player or listening to this in an enhanced podcast player. Yeah, some really great points there, and I think that'll do us for this week. It's time for Drumroll, please. The brilliantly named Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, Shaka. Officially add the shaka. Is oh my god. Okay. Oh my god. Someone's got a mouse. Oh my god, someone's possessed our computer. Someone's got a mouse. Oh my god. Whoever has a mouse, stop using it. Turn Some, your mouse off. Someone's controlling this computer with their mouse. <laughs> that was freaky. <laughs> Thank you. That was awesome. Okay, so, hey, back to regular programming. Back to regular programming. <laughs> It's the ice ghost. So wait, is the shaka so-so? The shaka is just another thumbs down. Thumbs up, thumbs no, down. Thumbs down? Shaka is a thumbs up. Fox shaka is a thumbs up. Shaka is like a seek. Seek. Yeah, so you go like thumbs up, yay, thumbs down, boo, and then like seek. <laughs> so many of our thumbs up, thumbs down are a bit of both though. Then that's what kind of like, you know, if there, sh- there should be, because there's the upright shaka, there should be like a middle shaka. The middle is well. the like the comsi comsa, comsi you know, comsa. the like, yeah. Okay. So we've got thumbs up, thumbs down, shaka, come see, come see. We'll, we'll, this is getting out of hand. We'll workshop it. <laughs> out of hand. Laura, <laughs> uh, what do you got for us? I have a thumbs up this week. So for anyone outside of Australia, and if you're in Australia and unaware of this, then I don't want to know you. But The Bachelor is in full swing and it's been phenomenal. And I uh, got to take a part in it this year as well. And That's my thumbs up. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Oh my God, you ruined everything. So pretend you didn't hear Jeremy. My thumbs up this week is one of our wonderful artists, Guy Shield. We got a, we got contacted a while ago for him to come in and be part of a segment on The Bachelor. It was one of the single dates and he was going to um, have to blindly, well, not, he wasn't blindfolded or anything. He had to draw the couple. They were going to have to describe the, each other to him and he was going to have to try and draw portraits of them. Um, and we sort of, he went and did that, but we never knew if it was actually going to make it onto the show, if it was going to get cut, um, what it was actually going to look like. He couldn't really tell us much because he was, there was, you know, confidentiality agreements. And the other night I was, I got home late and I was in bed and I was like, I'm going to catch up on Batchy. And I started watching it and suddenly Guy came on the show and he was so good. And I think I texted him at like 11 o'clock at night being like, ah, you're on Batchy. And it was, it was awesome. And then he was in all the like Batchy recaps I was reading the next day. It was very, very good. Very, very exciting. Probably, probably the most exciting thing to happen at Jackie Winter all year. Amazing. Bianca, what about you? I feel like I've just been... I like was trying to think all day today, like what is my thumbs up, what is my thumbs down? But Cobble like, Hill is your thumbs up. Oh yeah, We've been I, so I just I just moved and 
thumbs up to sunsets. Like, okay, I'm on a fourth floor walk up, which is to sunsets. I have the most beautiful, like when I got home this evening, Jeremy, when I was on the phone with you earlier tonight, I just watched the sunset from my kitchen table. It's like pretty great. I'm how high were you? <laughs> fourth floor, I think. Fourth floor, fourth floor. That's it. Right? <laughs> That's um, a shock. No, sure. <laughs> a change of scenery is very good. Like Bushwick, you were great for a while, but I am loving South Brooklyn. My hair, my hair, my head feels very clear over over on this She's side. Still high. Of, <laughs> side <of> Brooklyn. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, I, yeah, we got, we got three um, thumbs up in a row this week and I'm going to be doing some more just blatant marketing of our amazing um, puzzle operation, which um, is gone into kind of full swing. Mel recently came back from New York now where we kind of launched some new puzzles at the trade show there. And we're about to launch, yeah, like we're about to launch our first Jackie Minter signature editions. And we, they just came back from our new factory in Germany and they look so good. They look so good. And I just good. so I excited to share them. tonight because I'm going to bring it to a meeting in LA tomorrow. They are difficult. Oh. <laughs> They're very difficult. If you're listening to this on a Friday, then I think that yeah, they will actually kind of be released today so check out our instagram if you want to kind of see more of them and if you're in melbourne come down to lamington drive and have a have a go we're having a little puzzle competition three heats and a grand final over four weeks four tables four couples each win puzzles this is actually inspired by a documentary i saw called wicker kittens which is about competitive puzzling in the midwest it's named wicker kittens because there's a puzzle just with lots of kittens and wicker baskets and that that's where sense. it came from which but like it was so funny it was like a small kind of a small time doco and it like they got this like this really cinematic post-rock band to score it yeah um, and it into like, it yeah it was just but it was, it was so kind of dissonant anyway it was hilarious it's only it's only like an hour long so if you're interested in competitive puzzling you can either come down to melbourne or check it out online we'll put in our show notes as we do and that is about it thank you so much laura thank you thank you b thank you Okay, now we're about to get into our outro here, and I've realized that, you know, I can probably read this, you know, verbatim every week, but it is a script, and I know a lot of you kind of tune out, but there's important information there. So, before you go on, I think we're going to try a new thing, and I'm going to try to do speed runs here, basically. I'm going to try to read the outro as fast as I can, and I'm going to try to beat it every week. And no until... we'll be able to understand the information. Especially if they're, yeah, living, you... uh, if they're listening at two times. Let, I want to give it a shot. Humor me here. Mm-hmm. This was in your visual employment agreement that you had. <laughs> ah, of course. I think I did. <laughs> so, Laura, can you please get the timer out and do, yes. the, and do the honors? I will do the honors. Okay. Um, do, 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 do. Stopwatch. Are you ready? Ready? Set. Go. I'm Jeremy Warsman. She's Laura Tan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business, and that was also Bianca Branham. Our theme music is by Totally Unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out the stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more Jackie Winter Gives You the Business, archives of all of our shows and the links we covered each week can be found at JackieWinter.biz. To receive all the links we talk about in the show each week in one neat little package, you can sign into our podcast newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter. You can also find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y in Winter like the season, and you can hit us up with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at Jackie If you love what you hear, you can really help us out by subscribing, rating, and leaving us 
a comment on iTunes and, of course, recommending us to all your mates, as well as iTunes. They can get the show wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher, or for the tradition list directly from our website, jackiewinder.gfgd.biz. Remember, this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using the Pocket Cast, Overcast, or Castro apps, you'll be able to see links to the articles as we're talking about them, as well as other schmick visual content as we wrap it on. It's like we're right in the room with you. With you. And if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check out our opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye-bye. What I got? 101.67. Okay, that's the time for the beat. That was more exciting than watching the Eagles win the Super Bowl. Thank you. (laughs) Low standard. Checks in the mail. We'll see you all next week. Thanks again. Bye-bye. I should do it one day. I'm like, yeah, I just might, I feel like I might get addicted and then I'll run away and become a soul cycle instructor and you'll never see me again. (laughs) (laughs) That's highly likely. (laughs) 